0: Hey, we have made it to the last Sunday in um, our, our series called The Devil Wears. And, and, and my hope today is gonna bring it all to a conclusion, but um, I'm, gonna have to, I'm gonna have to go through, I'm gonna have to go quick. So bu- buckle up. Uh, for 250 years, I've been saying this from the beginning, for 250 years, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt. They've been treated like property. They've been treated like trash. They, they really have been treated like, like beasts, like animals, and and they they have this weird kind of mashup of um, religious ideas, and some of them come from this place called Chaldea. It's where Abraham was called. If you read the story of Abraham, it says God called Abraham from his home in Ur of the Chaldeans, that's a nation of people, had their own religion and idols and gods and all that kind of stuff, and he called him to the Holy Land. But for 250 years, they've been slaves in Egypt, and so they have had to, to follow and be immersed in the religious practices and, and follow the, the, the idols and the gods um, that existed in, in Egypt. And so they're, they're going along, they have this weird kind of mashed up religion between Chaldea and Egypt, and, and then they knew these stories they knew these stories from their, their ancestry of Abraham and, um, and, and Isaac and, and Jacob and they had had these conversations with this God that nobody really knows, like no other nation worships, they don't know anything about him other than that at different times he's spoken to their fathers about things and told them about their future. That's, that's all they know about this God. And so they have been slaves for 250 years. Their their real life kind of function is this God who called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is, is not really a God. Like, where is he? Where has he been? All of these things that he promised, they haven't come to pass, and so maybe he's not a God at all. And then all of a sudden, this God of their fathers shows up in their own story. And, and he simultaneously rescues them from 250 years of slavery and proves that he is the God of all gods. Like there is no other idol, no other God that any nation wor- worshipped the world over that could compete with him. And so he brings them out of, of Egypt. And so now we have a few million Hebrew people, Israelites, Jewish people, and we have probably several million Egyptians who, who recognize that this God of the Hebrew people is like the God. And so they're like, we're, we're going with you. Wherever you guys are going, we're going there as well. And now they're roaming the desert, wondering what have we gotten into? Who is this God? They, they, know, they know virtually nothing about him. Why did he rescue us? Why did he hear our call? What does he want from us? And they seriously wrestled with this enormous enormous question. How do we follow a God we don't know? Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. You've worshiped all these different gods, you've heard stories of this one God, but man, he hasn't done anything for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and all of a sudden, he shows up, he rescues you, he decimates Egypt, and now you're in the desert, what do you do? It's a huge question that the Genesis story is is answering if we recognize that that's really the question going on. Remember, the Genesis story is is told to Moses when they're in the desert, and it's about 2,500 years after Adam okay so we're skipping ahead in the timeline by the time God talks to Moses and he gives him this Genesis or creation story it's about 2500 years from Adam it's about 900 years after the flood and so every people group on the planet they they know two stories they have a creation story and and from whatever God they worship they have a creation story and they have a flood story Every nation on earth, every people group on earth, if you go back into their history, you find a flood story. And then God rescues the Israelites, he brings them to the desert, he tells Moses now the real story. I know you've heard these creation stories, you've heard these flood stories, you've heard all kinds of stories about how this got started, I'm gonna give you the real story. And so over the last five weeks, we've covered Abraham or Adam and Eve, we've covered um, Cain and Abel, and, and now we're going to look a, a little bit, at least the beginning part of the story of Noah. And so we're going to jump in right off the bat to chapter six. It's the prologue to the flood story, and it kind of sets the stage um, like this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, okay, That's like this point in the story where God's going, okay, we're shifting gears a little bit. There's been some time that has passed from from the story of Cain, and some time has passed, and now there's lots of people on earth. And and, and we think about, but like, that's what God commanded humanity to do, right? He said, "Um, be fruitful and multiply, and that's what they have done. And so there's this, there's this kind of idea that it's like, okay, there's lots of people now. The people are doing kind of what God told them to do, to multiply, to be fruitful, to fill the earth, to subdue it, subdue it to have dominion over the rest of the animal. But remember, God's plan was that humanity, as his image bearers, would be fruitful and multiply in cooperation with him. That we would be like little gods, and and we would kind of help him rule over creation. And and we'd do really cool things with the world that he'd given us, and we'd, we'd continue his creation pattern, and we'd do all kinds of neat stuff with that. But humanity began to write their own story, right? It started with Eve. Well, maybe God's not really telling us the whole story. Maybe... I can write a better story for myself. And so they begin to ignore God's plan in in favor of their own plan. And so instead of image bearers, they are are really acting like beasts. And so we're gonna jump to uh, verses five to seven. Here's what it says. (coughs) Excuse me. Chapter six, five to seven. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a, that's a pretty big statement, right? And so the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now look, if if you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe the Bible and and what it says, if you believe the Genesis story, you have a problem with these three verses. And and we're not used to think, I've been saying this through this series, we're not used to thinking about problems and, and looking at things in the Bible. We tend to just read it and go, Okay, <laughs> that's what happened. Talking donkey, <laughs> talking serpent. Okay, here we go. Like we're used to just seeing crazy things in the Bible and just kind of moving past them because, because we've been taught from a young age, don't question what you read. Like, it, like this is God's word. You can't question it. You can't think about it. You can't. Want, but that's how we discover things. That's how we learn new things. That's how we discover who this God really is when we begin to ask questions. And so if you're a follower, if you believe this, you've got a problem with these three verses. And and here's the problem. How can a perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful God feel regret for something that he did? Didn't he know that was gonna happen? How could God be sorry about anything? He knows the end of the story. There is no case, there is no way where God should ever have regret or feel sorry about anything. And why is he grieved? The text says that he's grieved not just for humanity, but for the birds and the beasts of the field. Like All of these things he created, the earth, all of it, he's grieved by it. Like, Didn't God know that humanity would reject him and his plan and his purpose? Wasn't he prepared for this? And and guess what? If God wasn't prepared for this, if God didn't know this was going to happen, if this is a surprise to him, he's not much of a God. So we have a problem here in in the story. How can this all-knowing God be grieved and saddened for the things that he himself did? Well, first of all, let's try to answer some of those. First of all, none of humanity's choices, none of humanity's sin came as a surprise to God. And we know that because of what we find in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, right? It's the first mention of this Messiah, this Savior that's going to come and he's going to rescue all of humanity. So from the very beginning, just a handful of verses into the story, God's like, look, I, I know what's going to happen, and so I'm making a, a way to bring this all about. Like, I'm, I'm, I've got a plan here that's, that's bigger than what's going on in, in the moment. God knew where this was going to lead. And, and remember, we know how the story ends. And That's part of the problem with reading Scripture. We know how the story ends. And, and so um, we sometimes struggle with the arc of the story in the middle. Like we read these things that just don't really make sense, but because we know how the story ends, because we flipped to the back of the book and we read the last page, we just kind of go, well, okay. I don't really know what's going on here. I don't really know why this is happening, but I know what's gonna end, and, and so I'm just gonna go on, uh, I'm just gonna go on with this. Like the, the things that we read sometimes in Scripture, they don't make sense, to us because we know the end of the story. But God was conveying something important to the Hebrew people and to all these Egyptian people who were hearing this creation story for the very first time. Now they had an idea, they'd they'd been told stories about how the the god Ra or different gods from Egypt or Chaldea had had created uh, everything they knew those stories, they just didn't know the story. And so they're at the foot of Mount Sinai and they're hearing the story from the horse's mouth for the very first time. And, and consider, much, consider that, it, that pretty much in the whole entire world at, at this point in, in time, okay, 2,500 years after Adam, 900 years after the flood, pretty much the whole world when they thought about gods or the gods, and of course every nation had their own gods, every god was pretty much just ambivalent toward creation. Even the stories of those gods who like, were actually the ones, Zeus or whoever, who actually created the world in those stories, um, they, they really didn't care much about their creation. Like They didn't care much about humanity, but they did mess with humanity. Um, and, and so it was this weird kind of, kind of thing. And so the fact that the behavior of creation could make the creator sad or grieved was a completely foreign concept to the to people of Israel and, and Egypt. Like they'd never heard of that before. Gods don't really care about what happens to us here. Like, why would a God in heaven be affected by what goes wrong with humanity? They just didn't have a frame of reference for that. And so I think the point of this statement by God, that he was grieved and he was was saddened and he regretted creating humanity, is, is there's a point to it. He wanted to let these people know that unlike all the other gods that they had known their whole entire lives, this God cares for creation and is grieved by their behavior. And and that becomes a big theme of the Bible. Our actions and our attitudes are important to God, not just our offerings. And so we, we talk about this in the New Testament. It's, it's not just about, um, okay, I, I go to church, and I give, and I serve. I must be good, and when I get to heaven, God's going to accept me because I'm going to go, well, I, I showed up. I offered some things, and God's going to go, oh, okay, great. great. Like the, the Bible as a whole really tells us it's not just about the I like Go back to the story of Cain. It's not about the offering that we bring. It's about our attitude and actions, how we think, and are we loving, and is there care and grace? Is there love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Are any of those things present in our lives? You can make whatever offerings you want to, but, but uh, uh, Corinthians says if you, you don't have love, it doesn't make any different. And so um, th- this is gonna be important to remember as as we continue in the story. So let's jump to verses 17 and 18. For behold, God says, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. He's talking to Noah here. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, a couple weeks ago, um, I, we, were, we were talking about Cain and his offering, and I pointed out that, that one of the big questions, I think, that was surrounding that story and this question about God was what will God do if we disappoint him, if we bring him the wrong offering? Like they had an idea based on all the other gods of the world of what would happen, but they didn't know what would happen with this God. So they, they had just seen God decimate Egypt. Like, he, he totally, like, man, he poned all the other gods. You don't know what that word is. You're old. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, somebody had to tell me. Anyway, uh, I was poning some noobs, and um, so it it just means that you're teaching them a lesson. So, anyway, welcome. Not you learned something today. Okay, uh, so... <laughs> What will God do if we, if, if we disappoint him? Like they'd seen God decimate Egypt and, and they're like, my goodness, what is he gonna do if we bring the wrong offering, if we do the wrong thing? And so in chapter six, we go, oh, maybe this is what God does. Maybe this is what God does if we disappoint him. Maybe he shows up and he just wipes the slate clean. But verse 11 in, in the chapter tells us that the earth the earth was corrupt and it was filled with violence. In fact, he goes on to say, all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And he's not just talking about humanity. He's talking about all of the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. All flesh had corrupted their way on earth. But as you read the story of, of Noah, you really begin to get this sense. Because what did we just read? We read that God was saddened And and he was grieved and he regretted what he had done. Why? Because of the violence that was on the earth, because the evil that had come up on the earth. Not once in the story of Noah do we find that God is angry and punishing them. There is no point in the story of, of the flood where God is like, I hate my creation and so I'm destroying it. He doesn't hate it, he's grieved by it. He's saddened by it. And so it sounds less like God is angry with creation and more like God is just saddened because of their behavior. And he's looking for a way to protect his creation from his creation. That's a sad thing. This this just just came to me and I'm gonna throw it out there. We probably don't have time for it, but listen to it anyway. Uh, Andrew and I have four children. Trevor and and Tristan and and Trent and TJ. When Trent was much younger, for about eight years, he was incredibly violent and could be very aggressive. And and many times when the kids were young, he hurt the other three kids. As a parent, watching that happen, it's devastating. Because what are you supposed to do as a parent? You're supposed to protect your children, but how do you protect your children from your children? It's a very difficult position to be in. And I hope you never have to experience it. But think about that in relation to God. He had created all of these people. He had a plan, he had a purpose. They were in this perfect place in the garden and all of a sudden things go wrong and now his creation is hurting his creation and he is grieved by this behavior. The other thing that we see in this text is this word that we've never seen before in Scripture. And so if you see a word and you're like, I don't think I've ever heard this before, it's probably a good idea for you to key in on that word because probably it's going to come back up and it's going to be important. And so the word that we hear in this text for the first time is this word covenant. It's the first time it's used, um, and so we're going to have to, to look at it. Uh, and so up to this point in creation, God has just kind of had this kind of, this kind of easygoing thing with creation. He's like, hey, I want you to be my partners on earth. Like, hey, let's, let's partner up. Uh, I'll bless you, and then you can help me, and this will be really cool as we kind of manage all of this stuff that I've created. But obviously it goes horribly, horribly wrong, And so now God isn't like, hey, I want you to be my partner. Now God is saying, hey, uh, Noah, I want to enter into this thing called a covenant with you. And we have no idea if Noah, even at this point, knew what a covenant was. Noah may not have known in that moment what a covenant was. But if you remember, the story of creation is not written just about creation. It's written for these people who are in the desert 2,500 years later going, how do we serve this God that we don't know? How do we follow him? And those people, the Egyptians and the Israelites, they absolutely knew what a covenant was. And so let's fast forward. Chapter seven comes and the flood comes. And the flood continued for 40 days and there was water covering the earth for 150 days and all the animals and birds that didn't live in the water or weren't in the ark, They died. And then we get to Genesis chapter 8. And verse 1 says this But God remembered Noah. There's this other, other word. How could God forget? If God is God, he can't forget. So this doesn't make any sense. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters. Subsided. Now, what's super cool about this verse is that last part. God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Does that sound familiar to you at all in the story that we've been covering for the last five or six weeks? Where else have we heard that there was a wind of God and there was water? You're gonna have to put your thinking caps on and remember because the word for wind is the Hebrew word ruach. And again, probably didn't say that right. Don't quote me on it. Uh, ruach. And, and it can mean wind, but it also is the same word for God's spirit, breath. And so if you go back to Genesis chapter one, verse one, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and Void and water covered the surfaces of the deep and the spirit, the Ruach of God, hovered over the waters. And what happens next? The water subsides and dry ground appears. Here we have in chapter eight of Genesis this conversation with God and Noah and we're being told what is going on and we're told that God made a wind blow and the waters subsided. Now if you look at the Midrash, and the Midrash is a, 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 a journal essentially of the oral teachings of ancient Jewish rabbis who were trying to explain the things that we read in the Bible. They're trying to help us understand more of what was going on from an Eastern culture perspective. And if you uh, look at the Midrash about Genesis chapter eight, you find that those ancient teachers say, that in chapter eight you find a recreation of creation. All of the six days of creation are found in Genesis chapter eight. Now sometimes you have to look for them, but you see water subsiding and dry land appeared and there's animals and there's all these things that happen and it's really cool. But near the end of the chapter, uh, chapter eight, Noah and his family symbolically recreate creation, the creation of humanity on the earth when the ark is opened and they walk out onto land. It's like the story of Adam and and Eve in Genesis chapter one. It's really neat. And what does Noah do first? Noah comes out of the ark and he makes an offering just like Cain and Abel. And this offering is good. And God blesses Noah and his family just like he did in the beginning. And he told Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and then we're gonna skip ahead to chapter nine, verses eight to 17. It's a lot, so just keep up. God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you, and with every living creature. Oh, by the way, verse nine, did you see that? Behold, I will establish my covenant. We're like, okay, we just heard that word a a chapter or two ago. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that's number two I think, And the earth, when I bring cloud covenant, when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the. Covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Do you think God went a little crazy with the covenant in that section? Covenant, 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 covenant. It's like, it's like crazy, like Noah is going, okay God, we're making a covenant? Is that what's happening here? Like, this, is just, this is just odd, it doesn't make any any sense unless you're reading it in the Hebrew and you notice some things. The word um, covenant is used seven times in the story. There's also a repeat of the words earth and uh, bow and clouds. And it's really cool if you take all of those, they're all, they all appear um, odd number of times, seven, seven, five, three. And if you go to the center of all of those, because odd numbers have a center, right? Some of you like odd numbers because there's a center. It's equal numbers on either side and you have a center which is kind of neat. It's why I struggle um, between uh, staying on p- uh, p- uh, even numbers on the volume on the TV and like a middle number, like five. I, I'm just not sure which way to go there because the odd numbers have a middle and I like that, but then the even numbers are even and I like those and so I just don't know what to, don't know what to do. Uh, so if you go to the middle occurrence of each of those words, there is this really cool sentence that appears. It it kind of takes some of uh, verse 14 and some of verse 15, but it basically says, I will remember my covenant. It's the center of of that section. What we fail to see is something that every Hebrew and Egyptian person who was hearing this story would have seen clearly, and it has to do with this idea of the covenant. God wanted to make sure that all these millions of people in the desert understood what was happening between God and humanity, and it's called a suzerain vassal covenant. Um, and I'm gonna try to explain it just as quickly as I can, as I, can I think it's really cool. A suzerain was a um, wealthy or powerful person or nation or king. And that suzerain might have a vassal. Now the vassal was a less wealthy, powerful nation or person or king. And so if, if, I'm, the, if I'm the king of a, of a small nation and another nation is threatening to come and invade me, like they send me a letter and say, hey, I'm gonna come and invade you, get ready. What I might do is go find another king who's more powerful than that army and king. And I might say, hey, um, if you will be a suzerain, I will be your vassal, and I will make offerings to you. I will, I will pay taxes to you. I will give you things if you will give me protection. And so that, that suzerain, that more powerful nation, would say, okay, I, I will um, protect you. You can be my vassal. You give me money. You make offerings to me, and then I will, I will send a letter to that king and say, hey, if you attack this, this person, I'm gonna come get you and and so that's how the world worked at the time and so that that suzerain, that powerful nation or king would tell their vassal, um, they would give them a a sign or a token of the covenant that they were making, the suzerain vassal covenant that they were making. Now sometimes it was a physical thing um, that had to be kept and sometimes it was, it, it was a, a sign or a word or something that had to be kept. Now if at any point the vassal who was required to keep the sign or the token, it was his responsibility. If at any point the vassal forgets the sign or the word or loses the token, the covenant is broken. If, if the vassal comes and says, hey, this nation is trying to come get me, I need you to, to, to protect me, that suzerain was gonna go, who are you and why should I protect you? And if they couldn't produce the token or produce the, the, the password, essentially, the suzerain said, I don't know you, I'm not going to help you. So it was a big deal for the vassal to keep this stuff. Um, the, uh, the other thing that is crazy, that is if a vassal um, would forget the token or, or, or um, the, the sign, the symbol, the password, or whatever, then the suzerain might come in and attack the vassal himself. Um, and, and so the suzerain would go, well, I must not have a, a covenant with you. You can't produce the token So, I'm just going to, I'll come and destroy you and take everything you have and decimate your city. So, this is very important for the vassal to keep this stuff. Um, (laughs) Okay, there's something else really, really important happening here, and I don't want to get too far ahead of it. Uh, You notice that in the text uh, we read in the ESV, it doesn't say rainbow. God doesn't say, I'll put my rainbow in the sky. He says, I will put my bow in the sky in the sky. Uh, translators have added the word rain so that we would understand what they were talking about. Um, because uh, what is a bow? I, I think it's probably uh, seasoned for that, or pretty close, right? It, if, you, if you go like this, what is that? A weapon. A bow is a weapon that can cause pain uh, at minimum, or destruction at max, like kill you at at maximum. Um, And and so uh, when God says I will put my bow in the clouds, they understood this not as this pretty rainbow that we stop and take pictures of. They understood it as a weapon of war here. And so what God is saying is, oh, by the way, which direction is the bow in the clouds facing? Us or him? Right? It's facing, it's facing God. Here, here's what God is saying to humanity. I as the suzerain, I as the most, um, uh, the more powerful party here, I'm entering into a covenant with you and we're worms to God, Right? Like like we're nothing to to God. I am entering into this covenant with you, but this is not a traditional covenant because I will keep the token for you so that you don't lose it or forget it. This doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we didn't live in that world, but it was huge to these people. God is saying, I will remember so you don't have to, and I will take the punishment if I ever break the promise I'm making to you. There is no vassal suzerain covenant ever in the history of the world that had these kind of agreements. Where the most important and powerful party said, I'll keep the token, I'll remember the password, and if I ever break my promise to you, I'll punish myself. This was a huge, huge deal. Every nation on earth had a flood story. The Egyptians had a flood story. But more importantly, the Chaldeans, where Abraham and the nation of Israel came from, they had a flood story. But in every other flood story on the planet, in every other nation's flood story, the gods are angry with humanity, they're mad, they're trying to take out vengeance on the earth. They're gonna destroy the earth in wrath and arrogance. But this flood story is different. This story that God is telling is not like any other story. In this this story, God doesn't, uh, mankind doesn't outwit the gods and save humanity like in all the other stories. In the real flood story, God once again is partnering with humanity. And he's partnering with humanity to save us by the flood from ourselves. The flood story is not an angry God story. It's a story of God saying, Look, your wickedness and violence and depravity, because you're acting like every other, other beast. If this continues, everyone on the planet, literally every person, would be corrupted, and there would be no Noah to partner with. And so God saved humanity by the flood so he could save us through the flood. In the story of Noah in the ark, God, uh, Noah and, and his family go up into the ark with all the other animals. The rain begins to fall, and the story says that God closes the door of the ark. Now, presumably, the door of the ark was so big that Noah and his sons could not physically close it. Remember, it had to hold all of the animals that were going up it and into the ark. It was this massive thing. And so the story tells us that God closed the door. God preserved humanity through Noah and his family to start again. God's not really destroying humanity. He's preserving humanity through the flood. There's one more thing that's important to the flood story. I think in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see this God who knows when to say enough. He's creating all of this universe in chapter one, all of these things, and he gets to this point where he says, okay, if I, take, if I take one more swing of the hammer and chisel, if I do one more stroke with the brush, I'm going to ruin what it is that I've created. And so God knows when to step back and put everything down and go, this is very good. It's just the way that I want it. That really is the big idea of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis 6, 7, and 8, we find that the same God who knows when to say enough to his creative power knows when to say enough to his destructive power. He didn't wipe creation from the earth. He actually preserved humanity on the earth. He saved us from ourselves while saving us for himself. And we've come through the story of of creation now and instead of an angry God or an absent God, the picture we have is a God who cares for his creation. A God who knows when to say enough. A God who will take the punishment on himself instead of punishing humanity a God who continues to invite us into partnership. What we see in the creation story is the God who would give himself on a cross to walk with us in the garden once again. How we defeat temptation in our lives when Satan tries whatever he thinks will work to get us to fall the way that we defeat temptation in our lives is not by being sinless because we can't. It's by being secure in the God who loves us. It's by being able to stand there and, and in, our, in our shame, and I blew it again and I said I wasn't gonna do it and I, and I did it, and God must be angry with me and he must hate me, and there's no way I'm going to make it. And I, 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 there's no way I can do it. But I know that God loves me. And even when I can't love myself, I'm going to trust the story that God is writing. And I'm going to go, God, you love me even when I don't love me. We have to recognize that we don't earn God's love. We already have it. You never lost it in the first place. You don't have to work your way back to God because He never left. And so today, this week, as you go about your life, rest in His love and be secure in his goodness and live forgiven through his sacrifice because you are not a beast you're better and god loves you let's pray father we thank you for this genesis story and we thank you that we can we can look at it and we can ask questions and we can say this doesn't make sense and by by looking at those things more closely, we can see a bigger picture of what's going on and who we are in your story. And so, God, I just I thank you for that. And I pray that we each would go through this week, um, not from a position where we feel like we have to do everything right this week. We have to not sin at all, because otherwise, you're going to be mad and you're going to reject us and you're going to be we're going to be separated from you. But that we go into this week just believing that no matter what happens, no matter how bad I fail or I fall, you love me and you gave your son to prove it. And that even in my sin and even in my failure, you want to partner with me and bring me to a better place. And so, God, we don't earn our salvation, we receive it from you with thankfulness, and so we thank you, God, for loving us. In Jesus' name.